Thank you, Fred, music team. We've uh, been making our way through the Bible's book of 1 Corinthians, and so if you uh, would turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, if you don't have your own Bible, we invite you to grab the one out of the uh, chair there in front of you. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 should be on page 954 if you're using the Pew Bible. This is a letter. It's written by a man named Paul. Uh, to a church in the ancient city of Corinth. And Corinth was a city that does not look all that different from our culture. It was a place obsessed with power, uh, obsessed with making a name for yourself, obsessed with freedom, sex, money. And this community of people, this thing called a church, was right in the middle of it. And so as we're going through this series, we're asking this question, what does it mean... To live in a place, but to not be defined by that place. To have a totally different set of values. To be a part of your city, but to be shaped by Jesus. Just a quick warning to parents of, of younger children. If you, uh, I'm going to go ahead and give you a warning for next week. If you read ahead, um, we're going to cover some difficult topics. Um, I'm not going to be very graphic or anything like that, but um, I want you, if you have younger children, uh, to go home and read 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 20, and make a decision. If, uh, if you're not ready, if, if, you look, if you read those passages and you think, whoa, I am not ready to have that conversation with my child yet, two things. First, it's time to have that conversation. I'm looking at myself as I say that, right? But second, if it would make you think un- you uncomfortable to sit uh, under a sermon on that passage, then would you let us know, and we will provide another opportunity for the for the youngest kids uh, during the sermon time of next week's uh, of next week's worship service. You can let me know. Uh, you can let one of our first impressions team know after the service. They have the the tags hanging around their necks. You can call us at the office. You can message us on Facebook. But just give us a heads up by Wednesday of this week if you would like for your kids to be somewhere else um, uh, with another activity during that sermon because it is going to be of a sensitive nature uh, and we don't want to make... Um, we don't want to have to broach that subject with your children before you have an opportunity to. So that's just kind of a heads up. Let's go ahead and read 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. Paul says this, When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or don't you know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Don't you know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers, but brother goes to law against brother and that before unbelievers? To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? 
but you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. This is God's word. Let's ask him to bless it. Let's pray. God in heaven, we pray that you would bless the reading, the hearing, and now the preaching of your word. That we indeed would be shaped more by Christ than by our culture. That we would be shaped more by what you have done, Lord Jesus, in the cross and empty tomb than what we have done, what maybe our parents have done, what the world around us has done and is doing. Would you help us to know what it means to live as a people set free? Bless this sermon, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, when I first started thinking about preaching through 1 Corinthians, the first name that I came up with for this series was Dysfunctional Family. Right? Because this had to be like the worst family reunion ever. If you just read through this book, I mean, there, there are literally people in the church suing each other. That's how hard a time they have of getting along. They are, they are bringing each other to court. Uh, and while maybe that raises a little bit of a chuckle when I say dysfunctional family, um, that may be actually a very sensitive issue for you, right? That, that, that you actually may have experienced some reality like this. You may not have to imagine how toxic an environment this church was because you've lived a toxic environment. You know what it means, maybe, to be heading somewhere and thinking to yourself, I really don't want to talk to Ted, because Ted is in a fight with Rob, and they're giving each other the silent treatment, and I really don't want to hear the gossip about it. I really don't want to deal with it at all. You know what? I just want to go somewhere else. Right? Maybe you've had that conversation, that mental monologue in your head about church, Family, work party. You know what it's like for there to be dysfunction in relationships. You know what it's like to feel that, that tension where people cannot get along because they will not resolve the conflict between them. That's really what's going on here in Corinth. Right? We may not have the experience of suing each other in open court. That's, that may be rare, extreme for us. But we do know what it's like to not resolve our conflicts. We do know what it's like to not be at peace with each other. And so what Paul is saying here in this passage for us today is that unresolved conflict kills relationships. Unresolved conflict kills community. Conflict that is not handled well kills community. And only the good news of Jesus enables us to reconcile with each other and handle our conflict the right way. Only Jesus can heal those relational divides, right? So what we're going to see today is that following Jesus means loving your neighbor enough to sacrifice your rights and reconcile, right? Make peace with them. Following Jesus means loving your neighbor enough that you would be willing to sacrifice your own rights and make peace. First, we're going to see what Paul is not saying, right? So as we read this about Paul, Paul is telling them, right, don't, 
don't take each other to court, right? Don't sue each other. This is, this is not a good thing. We're going to say, what is Paul not saying? And we're going to look at what Paul is saying. And then we're going to look to Jesus and see how we can learn this. All right, so first of all, what is Paul not saying? Well, Paul is not saying that there's no place for a legal system, right? He's not saying that the church should set up its own court apart from the Chilton County Courthouse and that we should really handle all of our stuff here. That we're, he is not saying that the pastor and the elders are qualified to handle all of the cases that are handled at the courthouse. That is not what Paul is saying. Paul is not saying there's no place for a good legal system. And even when he says, you go to court before the unrighteous, right? When he draws a line between the unrighteous and the saints, between brothers and sisters and unbelievers, he's not, he's not saying that the judges are poor, the judges are corrupt. He's simply just saying, they're outside the church, you're inside the church. He's not making a comment about the character of the legal system in Corinth. Because as, we're, as we've seen, just in our short time in this letter, sometimes the character of people outside the church is better than the character of the people inside the church. You may do better outside the church. You can be nicer people outside the church than the ones inside the church. So Paul's not saying that uh, the legal system is incompetent, nor that it, there's no place for it. Because in Romans 13, another letter that Paul wrote, he says this. He says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. So, so far from saying that there's no need for a legal system or government, Paul is saying, no, God has put that in place. God creates a legal system. For what? Romans 13 again. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resist what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who's in authority? Do what is good, and you'll receive his approval. He is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. He is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So God has created the legal system for the purpose of punishing evil. And when the legal system functions in a good and just way, meaning when it doesn't play favorites, when it doesn't favor one group over another, when the officials aren't corrupt, when the legal system functions in the way that it's supposed to, it's actually a representative of God. The legal system is meant to represent God's holy will, His holy justice. And so that means that there are times when we should call the police. There are issues that only legal courts can handle. Abuse, murder, etc. Those things are the purview and we need the help of the legal system. So Paul's not saying, no, nah, throw all the courts out, you guys handle all your own business. That's not what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, no, there's some, there are some trivial matters. Maybe matters of property, disputes between two people. Those, those you need to handle in-house. So, 
Paul's not saying do away with the legal system. What he is saying is that believers, those who have been saved and set apart by God, should work together to resolve their conflicts. Believers should work together to resolve their conflicts without involving, without, without calling Alexander Shannara. Okay? We need to handle, there's some things we can handle before we get to the Alabama hammer. Okay? Alright? Uh, in Paul, in Jewish culture in Paul's day, if, uh, if we had a dispute, if you and I had a dispute, let's say, um, you thought that I had stolen your sheep. And so you came to me and said, uh, hey, Kevin, I think uh, those sheep over there belong to me. And I said, mm, I'm pretty sure they belong to me. And we couldn't reach an agreement. We would go to the synagogue and the rabbi there would help us mediate that dispute. Right. We would through his help, we would come to an arrangement, an agreement. Paul says that that's that reality ought to be happening in the church because the church is the gathering of God. In fact, he says, do you dare go to law before the unrighteous? Surely you can handle some of these things yourselves. Why does he say that? He gives kind of an interesting reason. Look in verse 2. He says, don't you know that saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent or unworthy to try trivial cases? Don't you know we are to judge angels? Sounds kind of bizarre, doesn't it? What in the world is he talking about? Well, he's referencing a passage from the Old Testament, uh, a vision that Daniel sees in Daniel chapter 7, where uh, the saints, God's people, that's all that word means, those who are set apart by God. It doesn't mean that you're super holy. It doesn't mean that, uh, as we said in Sunday school, you're Jesus' Navy SEAL, okay? It's not the super, super people. It's just the ordinary people saved by God. In Daniel's vision, he sees the Messiah, the Son of Man, and he sees the saints gathered around him, ruling and judging with him. So those who identify with the Messiah will actually, at the final judgment, judge with him. Jesus confirms this in, let's see, in Matthew 19 and Luke 22. And we actually see a vision of it in Revelation chapter 20. Now listen, I'm not 100% sure what exactly that means or what that will look like. But I do know that the teaching of Jesus is in accordance with the Old Testament promise. And basically what Paul has been teaching them is that those who are united to Jesus will judge the world. And what Paul is saying is, if that's what you're going to be, then surely you ought to be, ha be able to handle the small stuff now. If you're going to be reigning and ruling with Jesus as co-heirs of the kingdom, then surely now you can handle this stuff about sheep, right? You're going you're gonna to be there on the last day uh, at the great judgment, surely you can decide for some trivial matters now. He even goes on to say that it's a mark of their wisdom or lack thereof. Look at verse 5. He says, I say this to your shame. Can it be there's no one among you wise enough to, to settle a dispute between the brothers? Now, if you've been with us in 1 Corinthians, if you remember anything about the first chapter, you remember that these folks in Corinth were boasting about how wise they were. They were very proud of their wisdom. They were very proud of what they had accomplished, of their intellect. And so Paul just calls them out, right? He embarrasses them. He says, you are so wise and not one of you can settle this right here? You guys have to go to an unbelieving judge to get it worked out? 
Where is your wisdom? You lack it. You don't have it. Paul is saying that of all people, those who belong to Jesus should have wisdom and learn how to resolve their conflicts in peace. Jesus even says, right, blessed are the peacemakers. Jesus doesn't say, blessed are the pot stirrers. Blessed are the busybodies. Blessed are the complainers. Blessed are the backbiters, the gossips. Jesus doesn't say that. He says, blessed are the peacemakers. And that's what Paul is calling them to be. Make peace with yourselves. How do we do that? What might that look like if we were to become peacemakers? Flip over, if you will, to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18. We're just going to walk through some verses. This is actually Jesus talking where He tells us how we might handle conflicts between ourselves. Matthew 18, verse 15. We can just kind of step this out. Jesus says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. So step one, if I've stolen your sheep, is for you to come to me. All right, there's, there's a conflict there. Paul doesn't say there won't be an absence of conflict in the church, by the way. Right? There will be conflict in the church because I'm a sinner and you're a sinner and that's not always going to go well. So the question is not how do we get rid of conflict, but how do we handle it? And Jesus gives us kind of a, a road map here. The first step is we handle it between ourselves. Can we resolve this? If I sin against you, you come to me with some humility, right? Uh, Jesus says in Matthew 5 to take the log out of your own eye first and to say, hey, uh, you've sinned against me in this way. What are we going to do about it? Right? So we handle it that way first. If that doesn't work, Jesus says this, verse 16, if he doesn't listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So if I won't listen to you, because I can be a stubborn fellow, right? Grab some other objective people and bring them along, right? And see if we can resolve it that way. And then Jesus says, if that doesn't even work, verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. We talked more about that last week, about church discipline and what it's meant for. So I encourage you to go back and, and listen to that. But basically, then, right, you bring in church accountability. If it's a deep enough uh, gap, if it's a real sin issue, then there's a place for church discipline. So those are the steps, right? Person to person, small group mediated, and then bigger if necessary. Right? Really a three-step roadmap. There's a, there's a bunch of different ways you can apply it. If you've never heard of Peacemaker Ministries, I encourage you to, to look them up online. Uh, there's lots of good resources for how to resolve conflict, but we actually have a few of these brochures uh, next door if you would be interested. I just wanted to read some of these things to you. Just tips on resolving conflict, okay? As you follow that roadmap, different things that you can put in place. First, the first thing to notice is that there, there are two ways we typically deal with conflict, right? When, when conflict comes into our lives, we go one of two ways, just naturally. One is escape, right? We deny, we run away, we don't want to deal with it. The other is attack, right? 
If you come at me, bro, I'm coming at you. Okay? Neither of those are Jesus' responses. We don't avoid conflict, but we don't actively assault either. Right? The third way, the Jesus way, is that of making peace. Just some things to think about. Maybe the first thing, even personally, is this. Overlooking the offense. They say this. Many disputes are so insignificant that they should be resolved by quietly overlooking an offense. Proverbs 19.11 A man's wisdom gives him patience. It is to his glory to overlook an offense. Have you ever thought, when offended, it's more glorious for me to overlook this, to take the hit, to not worry about it, to let it go? Right? Is that a, is that a common rule of practice in our culture? No, right? I gotta get mine. I gotta get back. I gotta get even. The Bible says, you may want to let this one go. It's just five dollars. Or it's just a hundred. Right? Overlook an offense. Reconciliation. Forgive as the Lord has forgiven you. Colossians 3, 1. If your brother sinned against you, Jesus says in Matthew 5, go and be reconciled. The heart of the gospel is always toward mending the relationship, not breaking it. But what is the legal, what, what is the legal system designed to do? What does, what does every, uh, attorney's commercial tell you to do, right? Get what you deserve. These are your rights. Fight for them. And there may be a time, right? We have to, to weigh that out. There may be a time when that's necessary. But do we, do we begin by thinking, how can I mend this relationship with my brother and sister? It's not what I want, but it's what Jesus wants. Paul is calling us to something radically countercultural. Radically countercultural, right? Our cultural perspective is radically me-centered. What's best for me? What do I deserve? What do I want? How can I avoid the most trouble and pain? In Christ, our perspective is radically others-centered. What is best for you? How can I love you, even if it means trouble and pain for me? It's radical, very different. So where do we get that from? Right? If that's what, if that's what we're being called to, if the church is called to embrace a radically other-centered perspective that doesn't stand on its rights, doesn't say, this is what I deserve, give it to me now, but says, I'm going to let that go, I'm going to forgive you. That's, how, do we, how do we learn that? Where do we get that from? Look at verse 7 there in 1 Corinthians 6. Back at 1 Corinthians 6. Look down at verse 7. I think this is key. Paul says... To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Paul says, whatever may happen in that courtroom, you've already lost. Even if you're awarded the one million dollar settlement, the fact that you had a lawsuit to begin with is a defeat for you. You have, you have already lost by suing your brother. The fact that there's even a lawsuit presence means that you have lost, regardless of what verdict is given in your favor. Paul goes on. 
Would it not be better? Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? Paul says, you and the church would be better off if you took the hit. If you were wronged. If you were defrauded than to do what you're doing. Would that not be a radical sort of community? Where instead of clamoring for what we deserve, not just refusing to be put out or inconvenienced, but actually allowing ourselves to be cheated and wronged for the good of the other person. That's crazy, isn't it? I mean, you can, you can agree with that. That sounds absolutely absurd. Nothing around us would say that's a good idea. But that's basically what Paul's saying. Be the kind of people who would rather take the hit than hit. Jesus says that, does he not? When he says, turn the other cheek. Where do we learn that kind of crazy? Jesus says this in John thirteen thirty four: A new commandment, a new law I give to you. That you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Now, we like the first part of that verse, right? A new law I give you, love one another. Yes, right? That is a good, warm, fuzzy, it means hugs. Uh, you know, it's going to be great. We're going we're gonna to love one another, right? But what does it look like for me to love you? And what does it look like for you to love me? Jesus says, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. What does it look like for me to love you? Well, how did Jesus love me? He gave up his rights. And he's the only one, by the way, who deserved any. He gave up what he rightly deserved, glory, honor, life. And he laid those aside. And he faced shame and scorn, and death. So that I could receive glory and life. Jesus sacrificed what rightly belonged to Him so that I could receive it. That's crazy. But that's how we get it. Jesus goes on, verse 35, By this, All people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Jesus says, as we practice and embody that kind of crazy love, that self-sacrificing, I'll do what's best for you even if it's my pain. As we practice and embody that, people will know that we belong to Jesus. Because nobody else is doing it. Nobody else can do it. Only Jesus. Only Jesus. How can we have a love like this? Listen to Peter, 1 Peter chapter 2. He says this, For to this you've been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in His steps. He committed no sin, nor was deceit found in His mouth. Peter saying, Jesus was guiltless. 
He didn't do anything wrong. He didn't even say anything wrong. And yet, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. How do I become free of needing to defend myself and go to war against you? I look at my Savior, who did not go to war, but entrusted the just judge. He knew that what they were saying was wrong, but he let it go. Because he knew one day it would not all be let go. Even more than that, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. You were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Friend, you're only going to learn, I'm only going to learn how to truly love and give myself for someone else when I have been bought and healed by the shepherd. When I've been bought and healed by the shepherd who gave his life like a sheep. That's how we become the kind of people who learn how to love. That's how we become the kind of people who, when we love, do not make war Do not stir up strife, but make peace. So that it would be unconscionable for me to take you to court. Because we've handled it. We've trusted the the true judge. The one who will judge all of us. And we've placed ourselves in Jesus' hands. Knowing that the judgment we deserve fell on Him. If all the judgment I deserve has fallen on somebody else then I have nothing I need to pay for. Nothing I need to be afraid of. Nothing to win and nothing to lose. Because Jesus paid it all. And all to Him I owe. Let's pray. God in heaven, we just pray that You would use this, Your Word, to change us, to mold us, to shape us, to make us people who love You, And love our neighbors first. And as we do, to bear the gospel out every day in our lives, to bear it out with our words, to point to you. And when we fail, to rest in you, knowing that you have borne in yourself on the tree all of our sins. There is nothing left to pay. We thank you for that, Lord Jesus. We pray it in your name. Amen.